0: 2007, November 1st. Today is lecture 31, Family of the Sun, an Overview of the Solar System, the start of Unit 6. So, okay, well welcome back. Today is the beginning of Unit 6. This is like the second to last unit of class. There's a, there's a two-unit, two-lecture unit at the very end of class on extrasolar planets. We really do have literally 16 lectures remaining in this quarter. Um, as you know, we've been, I've been recording these lectures every day for podcasting, and we get a lot of listeners from around the world. And I got an email from one of them today, and sometimes I like to do a shout-out to these guys, and so I thought this would be a good way to do it. Today's shout-out's a little different than I've gotten before. It's to 2nd uh, Lieutenant Bill Keating, his driver and his gunner, who are tooling around El anbar province in Iraq with the United States Army and Company A of the 2nd of the 504th. So send a shout out to Lieutenant Bill and his guys. You guys be safe and continue listening to the rest of the class. Today's lecture, yeah really, I was really quite surprised by that email today. So you never know who's going to listen to our class. Apparently they got some time on their hands. Let's hope they keep having time on their hands. Um, Today's lecture is is an overview. We're going to do a very quick overview of a lot of the properties of the solar system. And then starting in tomorrow's lecture, we're going to talk a little bit about the origin of the solar system. So this is going to lay down the sort of basic principles. We'll then ask the question, where did the solar system come from? And I want to ask that question up front before we go into the properties of the solar system because I want to be able to motivate a lot of what we're going to see elsewhere as we begin our detailed exploration of the solar system by what do we see that informs us about our ideas about where the solar system came from. And then from there, we will begin with Wednesday, Mercury, Venus, Mars, and then a comparison of the terrestrial planets. We'll go out to the Jovian planets and then further and further out. And finally, that will give us such a good view of the solar system, we're ready now to begin something even more interesting, I think, comparing our solar system to other solar systems we've recently begun to discover around other, plan- other stars. So the key ideas today is really kind of a quick overview of the solar system. The solar system contains, not surprisingly, the sun at the center, the terrestrial planets and the Jovian planets, and we'll define those here in detail. The dwarf planets, a new classification of planets in the last few years to encompass, among other things, Pluto, but also Eris and Ceres, two other dwarf planets. The giant moons that are found around some of the Jovian worlds that would be dwarf planets in their own right. Some of them are even bigger than the moon. The trans-Neptunian objects, a class of icy bodies that lives beyond the orbit of Neptune. And finally, sort of the leftover junk and debris, the asteroids, the comets, and the meteorites. The other key idea to get today is an important clue to the nature of the formation of the solar system. As with very few exceptions, all the stuff in the solar system seems to lie in the same plane and be orbiting in exactly the same direction. Now there are interesting exceptions to this. But primarily, there is a dynamical memory of the way in which the original material of the solar system was moving at the formation 4.6 billion years ago. From the point of view of solar system exploration, even though solar system is, research is not a lot of what I do in my own research, but I'm getting increasingly interested because we are actually now in a golden age of, of space exploration. From pretty much the time when you know when I was a, when I was a kid, the very first spacecraft started going out in the 1960s, now to the beginning of the 21st century, we've covered an awful lot of territory in the solar system. We've landed men on the moon, we've sent robotic landers to the moon, Venus, Mars, Titan, and asteroid 433 Eros. We've returned rock samples, many hundreds of kilos of rock samples from the moon. We've done direct probes of the atmospheres of Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and the giant moon Titan around Saturn. We've flown spacecraft by all of the eight major planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, well, Earth, of course, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune have all had spacecraft flybys at close range. Only of the outer worlds, Ceres, for example, a dwarf planet, Pluto, a dwarf planet, a.k.a. used to be a full-fledged planet, have not been visited yet, but spacecraft have been launched on their way to these planets even now. We've mapped out the surfaces of Venus and Titan, which are otherwise invisible to us because of their heavy cloud layers using uh, cloud-penetrating radar. And we've flown by asteroids and comets. And in fact, in the last year or so, we've actually flown a hunk of of metal into a comet as a penetrator knocking material off to study it. So we've we've had a tremendous amount of knowledge has come from the study of, of, uh, of these objects in space. Very little of this work is done by human beings suiting up and getting out into the, into the cold of space. We've only sent 16 human beings to the Moon over the course of the six Apollo missions. There were, tw- I'm sorry, 12 astronauts, excuse me, on the moon, for six missions total. We've sent primarily robotic avatars. We sent the Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 spacecrafts that were really the first major exploration of the outer solar system. Voyager 2, in particular, flew by Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, which all happened to be in the same quadrant of the solar system over about a 15-year period. The Venus-Magellan radar mapper, which gave us the clearest view we have yet of the surface of the planet Venus, although there's now a new spacecraft. The Venus orbiter uh, sent by the European Space Agency is studying its atmosphere. The Cassini and Huygens mission, which went into orbit around, which was launched 10 years ago and which has been in orbit around uh, Saturn for the last few years, has simply revolutionized our view of the planet Saturn and its various moons. I I could spend a whole class on the results from, from Saturn. It's just phenomenal. We'll spend a couple of lectures on this. The spacecraft MESSENGER is about to make its first pass by the planet Mercury in January of the coming year and of course the Mars exploration rovers, Opportunity and Spirit, which have been running far past their mission lifetimes and producing an amazing wealth of data on the surface of Mars. In particular they have found very compelling evidence for a past which was Mars was very wet, had liquid water. Well let's review for a moment the family of the Sun. What are the various things that move around that make up our solar system? Broadly speaking, we're gonna divide the the solar system into a variety of similar objects and then we're going to study them in detail and contrast and compare their properties to try to learn as much as we can about them. We'll start pretty close to home with the terrestrial planets. Not surprisingly, this includes the Earth. These are the rocky planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. They have solid surfaces. Three of these four have atmospheres. At least two of them have moons. We're gonna see what the differences and similarities are between these. The Jovian planets are found in the outer portions of the solar system. These are the gas giants, Jupiter and Saturn, and the ice giants, Uranus and Neptune. Now, it used to be a few years ago that one would call Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune all four together gas giants. But in recent years, we've begun to understand that Uranus and Neptune, in fact, are fundamentally different in their internal structure than Jupiter and Saturn, and we're now starting to think of them as actually a separate subclass of the so-called Jovian or Jupiter-like planets. In the last year, in 2006, the International Astronomical Union, which is kind of the UN of astronomy, as one of my colleagues likes to put it, tried to settle the question of is Pluto and some of these other smaller bodies we're finding in the outer solar system full-fledged planets or not? And they came up with the definition that we will discuss in detail later in the class of so-called dwarf planets. These are rocky or icy bodies that currently there are three objects in the solar system designated as dwarf planets, Pluto, Eris, which are both in the outer solar system, and Ceres, the largest of the asteroids. There are a number of other candidate dwarf planets, primarily in the outer solar system, but it's still a little ways away before we have enough data to know whether they should be so designated yet or not. And then finally, once you get past this stuff, you end up with all what I would call the debris, or which my planetary science colleagues give the more dignified name of small solar system bodies, These can be divided into two basic types by composition, the primarily icy bodies. Those are made primarily of water ice, carbon dioxide ice, methane ice, and so forth, which are the Kuiper Belt objects, which orbit primarily beyond the orbit of Neptune, and the comets, like, for example, Comet Holmes, which actually orbits between Mars and Jupiter, but it is basically a primarily frozen hunk of junk. And then there are the rocky bodies, the asteroids and the meteoroids, which are found pretty much mostly between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. But there are families of asteroids that live as close as the orbit of Mercury and perhaps even further out. And the meteoroids are the little bits of rock that occasionally fall to the Earth. What we're looking at in the small solar system bodies is really kind of the leftover construction materials from the assembly of the solar system. And we'll see a little bit more about that tomorrow. Now what we're going to see about these these different types of objects, I've sort of grouped them by various composition, primarily rocky planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, the giant Jovian, mostly gas, mostly hydrogen, helium, and ice's worlds, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, and then kind of a mixture of rocky and icy bodies. One of the things we notice right away is not only are things linked by composition, but those objects linked by composition share similar zones within the solar system. This is a cartoon of the new solar system in which we draw the Sun and all the planets to their appropriate scale. But I, of course, I'm not spacing them in their appropriate scales. At this scale, uh, the Earth would be way the heck out in northern Columbus somewhere. Um, The terrestrial planets are the four inner planets. They're the rocky, icy bodies that live fairly close to the Sun. The gas giants are the two largest planets in the solar system, and they kind of live in an intermediate zone, between about 5 and 10 astronomical units away from the Sun. The ice giants, Uranus and Neptune, live further out still. They live between around 20 and 25 and 30 astronomical units out from the sun, and they're much smaller. They still have hydrogen and helium in their atmospheres, but they're mostly ice slushy ice balls on the inside. And finally, the dwarf planets actually span a fair range of different objects. There's only one rocky dwarf planet at present, Ceres, the largest of the asteroids, and then Pluto and Eris, the two largest of the trans-Neptunian objects that we know about. Most of the new candidates for dwarf planets belong to this outer icy family of objects in the trans-Neptunian portions of space. It's interesting to note, for example, that there's a dividing line. Ceres kind of lands in between the terrestrial planets, and the the realm of the gas giants. It's also relevant to know that the, the boundary between terrestrials and rocky things seems to be largely close to or bounded on one end by the orbit of Jupiter, whereas the icy objects of the outer solar system are bounded by the orbit of Neptune. That turns out not to be an accident, as will be developed later on in this course, but just kind of keep it in mind that there really are two sort of gravitationally dominant objects that have an important role to play in where things orbit in the inner and outer solar system. Now, here's a, a fairly complicated plot you're not going to find in too many textbooks, and I really don't know why. It really belongs in them. This is going to plot two of the properties of these planets that are of interest to us. On the x axis, I've plotted the semi major axis, and I'm using a logarithmic scale where even steps are powers of 10 rather than 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. The range runs from a tenth of an astronomical unit all the way out to 100,000 astronomical units. At about 100,000 astronomical units is really the end of the solar system. That's about the place where tidal forces from the gravity or from from the gravity of our galaxy or from nearby passing stars are such that any objects orbiting out about 100,000 astronomical units away would be as likely to be torn away from the sun as join the sun. So this kind of represents the dynamical boundary of the solar system. Objects inside this distance are really gravitationally, strongly gravitationally bound to the sun. Outside that, tides can actually kick them loose. But most of the action of the solar system that we know occurs in the inner 100 astronomical units. Now that's not to say that there isn't anything out here. The problem is, is that objects 100 astronomical units out are extremely faint. It's right now at the limits of our technology to be able to see objects out here. There are really only about 4 or 5 objects which really do could reach out to beyond 100 astronomical units, but this is the semi-major axis of their orbit. These objects were all discovered when their elliptical orbits brought them closer in to the inner portions of the solar system. Out, If they were out at the ends of their aphelion, which you did that homework problem on last week, they would be practically invisible to the best techniques that we have today. So it's a real challenge This empty zone here is not so much empty because there's nothing there, but because it's just so hard to see things there. It represents a technological limit of our ability to see. On the y-axis here, I have plotted the masses of these objects in units of the mass of the Earth. So the Earth is located at one astronomical unit and one Earth mass. And I've shown the four inner terrestrial planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, in their mass and orbital positions. And then we have a big jump up to Jupiter, which is 318 times the mass of the Earth, and Saturn, these are the gas giants, and then down to the nearly identical, sort of, I think they're 13 and 15 times the mass of the Earth, are Uranus and Neptune. The dwarf planets, Ceres, Pluto, and Eris, are very, very much smaller than the Earth. In fact, they lie between one ten thousandth and one thousandth of the mass of the Earth. This is one of the reasons why people were so uncomfortable with having Pluto be a planet. You can see on this diagram, the terrestrials are here, the Jovians are here, and Pluto just didn't really fit. It was just way off the curve for the other planets. But it is the largest, it and Eris, which was discovered in the last couple of years, are the largest of a class of ice balls, Which have a huge range of sizes here in a place called the Kuiper Belt, or KBOs for Kuiper Belt Objects. So here are the icy bodies of the trans Neptunian realm. And then here are the rocky asteroids, which live in the main belt between about 2 and and 3.5 astronomical units between the orbit of Mars and Jupiter. And you'll notice something very interesting about this plot. The terrestrial planets rule in the inner part of the solar system, the Jovians rule in the middle part, but there's a clear boundary. The Kuiper Belt objects and the icy things are all found primarily beyond Neptune. That's why we generically refer to this entire region as the trans-Neptunian zone or trans-Neptunian objects. And the asteroids seem to lie between the gravitational zone of the terrestrial planets and the gravitational zone of Jupiter, the largest of the Jovian planets. These strong divisions and edges are no accident. These are actually There's reasons for why these things are here. For example, see this line of green points here all by itself at five astronomical units? They all line up exactly with Jupiter. Those are the Jupiter Trojans, the ones we saw a few weeks ago when we talked about the Lagrange points. This lineup of objects here that seems to stand out again, that's no accident, those are the Hildas. Those are in a 3 to 2 resonance with Jupiter. So we're seeing also some lineups here in the Kuiper Belt objects. So when we go through these objects in detail over the next couple of weeks, We're going to be coming back to this picture or variations upon it because it actually informs a lot of the story of the solar system. A lot of the dynamical story of the solar system is hidden in this plot. And we're going to see variations on that over the next couple of weeks. It's one of the reasons why I've dwelt on this picture for a while. It's it's really got a lot of information in it. Well, let's look at some of the basic properties of the planets. We're now dealing with the eight major planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. Again, the locations we've seen before, the terrestrial planets tend to be in the inner solar system between 0.4 and 1.5 astronomical units. That's basically bounded by the orbit of Mercury and the orbit of Mars. The Jovian planets, the gas and ice giants, live between 5 and 30 astronomical units. They're quite a bit further out. There's reasons for that we'll explore more tomorrow. All of these planets are similar in the sense, dynamically, they all orbit in the same general right-hand sense. If I was looking down upon the Sun, they all orbit in the same counterclockwise fashion as viewed from above the orbit of the the Earth. And furthermore, that sense of rotation is shared by the slow rotation of the Sun. The Sun is also rotating in a counterclockwise way. Furthermore, these rotations are all roughly confined to a plane, Even the most tilted of the planets, Mercury, which is tilted by seven degrees out of the ecliptic plane, all stay within a few degrees of the ecliptic and rotate around as if they all were formed in a big plane of spinning gas and junk, which in fact is how we think they were formed, in fact. It's this motion, the fact that they all move in the same direction, they all share roughly the same sense of rotation, the fact that the composition is different from the inside to the outside, that they all are confined to a plane are very important clues to the way in which the solar system formed. We'll pick this question up in more detail in tomorrow's lecture. But for today, to sort of show you that it it isn't just simply a random assemblage of things. The planets are in the positions they are for reasons that have to do with the way in which they formed. So here are the eight planets. If you look at the solar system from the outside, what you would see is the largest volume of the solar system is Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, the outer planets. The inner solar system really is the innermost little bit of the square here. The square is a little over one and a half astronomical units, three astronomical units on a side, one and a half astronomical units in radius, and they are Mercury at 0.4 AUs, Mer- Venus at about 0.8 AUs, Earth at 1 AU, and Mars out at about 1.4 AUs. Whereas Jupiter starts at five, Saturn is 10, And then Uranus and Neptune, the edge of Neptune is out around 30 astronomical units. I think Uranus, I keep wanting to say 25, but I'm getting a little shadow of doubt in my head. I haven't memorized those, those units at all. If we look at the solar system from the edge, and I've done my best to draw this as much in plane, this dashed line here represents the plane of the ecliptic, which is the plane of the Earth's orbit. It turns out the Earth's orbit is actually tilted with respect slightly to the orbit of Jupiter, which is really what the plane of the solar system really should be defined in terms of. Jupiter is the largest planet by far. It's got the most orbital energy because it's 300 times the mass of the the Earth. And if you looked at the solar system from the outside, you would say the solar system was the Sun, Jupiter, Saturn, and a whole bunch of little junk. It really is, most of the mass of the solar system is really in the Sun, Jupiter, and Saturn. And so really, dynamically speaking, the plane of the solar system is not the ecliptic. That's just a provincial plane because, well, you know, we live here and we're number one. So we, of course, defined our coordinate system in terms of the Earth's orbit, but dynamically speaking, we really should speak of it in terms of Jupiter's orbit. And in reality, Jupiter's orbit and the Earth's orbit are pretty close to being aligned, so the distinction is not important to us here. Well, let's let's go from the inside on our way out. Let's start with the sun. The sun is a middle-aged, kind of average-sized star. It's not particularly big, not particularly small. It consists of mostly hydrogen and helium. In fact, 99-point-something percent of the sun is hydrogen and helium, and roughly the proportion 75 to 25. There's fractions in there I've obviously rounded up because it adds up to 100, and then the rest of the fraction of the percent is all the rest of the periodic table. It contains 99.8% of the total mass of the solar system. So the solar solar system really is most of the mass is inside the body of the sun. We know from the mage dating of meteorites and various uh, ways of applying uh, stellar evolution models, the way in which stars should evolve over the course of their lifetime, that the sun is approximately 4.6 billion years old. It is, in fact, a middle-aged star. In round numbers, it is about halfway through the main prime of its life, In some 5 or 6 billion years from now, it will begin to undergo a series of complex internal changes and actually swell up into a red giant star more than 2,500 times brighter than we see it today. But that story is for Astronomy 162. The other thing about the Sun is it's the only really truly self-luminous object in the solar system. Not quite, but it's the most self-luminous object in the solar system. Surface temperature is approximately 6,000 degrees Kelvin. It's approximately a black body spectrum, although that black body is strongly modified by absorption lines in its atmosphere. And it emits primarily visible ultraviolet and infrared radiation. It is this radiation coming off of the sun, this light coming off the sun, that provides the primary source of heat, certainly for most of the bodies in the solar system. Although, as we'll see, there are some interesting exceptions. Jupiter, Saturn, and Neptune all actually produce more energy internally than they receive from the sunlight falling upon them. And the reasons for that will become, be made clear much later in, 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 the, in, this, in this lecture course. The reason why the sun is so hot and why it has been so hot for so long is that nuclear reactions are occurring in its core, which fuse hydrogen into helium over, over time. This hydrogen fuel can last for approximately 12 billion years. So in round numbers, we are approximately halfway through. So the sun is actually a middle-aged hydrogen-burning star. As we move outwards from the Sun, the very first celestial objects we run into are the terrestrial planets. These are Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. These are the Earth-like, hence the name terrestrial, from the Latin terra, meaning Earth. They're rocky planets. They have rocky solid surfaces. They're made primarily of silicate crusts sitting on top of iron uh, nickel cores. Uh, the largest of these planets is the Earth. So we are, we are actually number one, at least among the terrestrial planets, but not by a whole lot, as it turns out. They're also only found in the innermost portions of the solar system. You will only find terrestrial planets between about 0.4 and about 1.5 astronomical units. They have solid surfaces, as I said. They're mostly silicates and iron. The other distinguishing property is their density. Now, here's where I'm going to... I've mentioned density before, but now we have to, to shine it up a bit. What density is, is density is a measure of the amount of mass per unit volume. It's how tightly packed something is. So something that's relatively low density, a little bit of mass in a big volume, like imagine inflating a balloon, that's a super low density thing. Or you know a bag, of, uh, a bag of foam peanuts, that's low density. There's not very much mass for a really big bulk. High density means I've packed a lot of mass into a small space, like a hunk of rock, or a hunk of lead, or a hunk of iron. Those are very high density items. Our standard for density that we're going to use in the solar system is 1 gram per cc, which because of the original way the metric system was defined is the density of water, pure water, at sea level, at normal room temperature. So if I took a liter of water, that's 1,000 cc's. Remember that one liter of water has a mass of about 1 kilogram. 1,000 grams divided by 1,000 cc's is 1 gram per cc. So we're gonna be using the unit of the gram per cc for, for density, but just remember, pure water is one gram per cc. So something that's more dense than water, more den, bigger density than one gram per cc, if you put it in water, it would sink. So like a rock, a typical rock you pick up off the ground, if, as long as it's not a, an iron rich but a silicate rock, it's got a density somewhere between three or three and a half grams per cc. You toss a rock into a swimming pool, it sinks to the bottom. A typical chunk of iron, like a, an iron-rich basaltic lava or a chunk of meteoritic iron, has densities up around 5, almost 6 grams per cc. you take a hunk of iron and you throw it at the swimming pool, it sinks down really fast too. So all the materials, rocky solid materials, something that's made of silicates and iron mixtures, are going to have densities kind of in the range of 3 to 5, 5.5 grams per cc. So this actually is a very useful thing to know. If I can estimate the mean density of an object, a planet, a moon, a a comet or something, I've already got a glimpse as to what it's probably made of just by its mean density. So it's gonna be a very important property we're gonna see over and over again. And the other property of the terrestrial planets is that Venus, Earth, and Mars all have atmospheres. But the other terrestrial body, Mercury, and if you want to make it a terrestrial body sort of by association, the Moon does not. We're going to have to understand that and we'll we'll discuss that more when we actually get into the details of these objects later. Here's a nice size scale. These are all the planets now shown with photographs from space, shown to their appropriate size. The Earth at one Earth mass. The Earth mass is going to be our unit of mass in the solar system because I don't know about you, but I can't carry around, was it, uh, 5.97 times 10 to the 27 kilograms for the Earth? Eh, too big of a number. One Earth mass is going to be our standard. Venus is a near sister of the Earth. It's about 0.82 Earth masses. I've shown a picture here, not with Venus covered by clouds, but a radar map of its surface. Mercury, the smallest of the terrestrial planets, is a little under 5.5% the mass of the Earth. Now I'm showing it as a half Mercury here, not because I'm trying to be artistic, but because in fact we have only mapped half the surface, as we'll see in, in Wednesday's lecture. And finally, Mars, the second number two in up in small size of the terrestrial planets, is about 11% the mass of the Earth. And it's fairly small. You can see they really do line up. Earth the biggest, Venus, then Mars, then Mercury. The next group of major planets in the solar system are the so-called Jovian planets. These are the Jupiter-like planets for Jove, the the Latin name for for Jupiter. These are Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune in order of distance outward from the Sun to outwards. These are the largest of the planets. The smallest of these is 15 times the mass of the Earth. They're only found in the outer solar system between 5 and about 30 astronomical units. They do not have solid surfaces. They're pretty much mostly atmosphere until you get down to such deep layers that you really don't have a surface to stand upon. You kind of just sink into them all the way to the center. One thing that really distinguishes them, though, is their mean density is actually pretty low. The lowest density of these is Saturn at 0.7 grams per cc. The most dense, which are basically the ice giants, ring in at about 1.7 grams per cc. Now, I just got through telling you that water is about 1 gram per cc. Now, as you know, ice, water ice, floats on water. So water ice is just a shade under 1 gram per cc density. So, okay, a material with 0.7 grams per cc would, in fact, float on water, although, practically speaking, you really can't make a bathtub big enough to float Saturn on, even though that's a common picture used in elementary textbooks. But it's pretty close. It's a very low density material. It's got a lot of bulk, but there's not a lot of matter packed into that bulk for some reason. Hmm. This is probably telling us that we're getting down into things that are made of mostly gases up towards things which are starting to be larger and larger fractions of solid ices, rock, and gases. So there's a dividing line, kind of 3 grams per cc and above, 3 times the density of water and above. You're dealing with solid rock or some kind of solid rock stuff. Densities of about one, one and a half grams per cc. You're dealing with, if they're small objects, they're mostly ices. If they're very big objects, they're ices and gases. So immediately we get a clue from the, from the density as to what the composition is. Of course, we seek confirmation in that by say taking spectra of the surface, flying by, and so forth. There are two different classes of Jovian planets that we recognize. The gas giants are the two largest, Jupiter and Saturn. These have extremely thick hydrogen-helium atmospheres surrounding very small, very massive rock and ice cores under very, very high compression. Now, the mass of those rock and ice cores is kind of a matter of some debate. They're very difficult to measure. But largely, Jupiter and Saturn might as well be almost all hydrogen-helium atmospheres, and you just sink down into the middle of the rock-ice core. There's no solid surface to stand on, but they really have really heavy, deep, gas atmospheres and gas, or actually liquid gas, or not really liquid gas, highly compressed gas mantles. And we'll see some more of that in next week's lectures. The ice giants are Uranus and Neptune. These really are quite distinguished by the fact that most of their mass is in their ice and rock cores, rather than the case with the gas giants where most of the mass is in their hydrogen-helium atmospheres. They have very, very deep ice and rock cores and ice and rock mantles and are surrounded by relatively shallow, I say thin here, hydrogen-helium atmospheres. You don't want to think of these things as having solid surfaces between those hydro- underneath those hydrogen-helium atmospheres. They're still pretty thick, right? They're way thicker than, you, than anything else we see in terms of atmospheres in the terrestrial planets, but they really do stand out for this difference of composition. They're higher density. There's a lot bigger proportion of ices and rock relative to gas in the ice giants than in the gas giants. These are the Jovian planets, again, shown to scale. Jupiter at 318 times the mass of the Earth and Saturn at 95 times the mass of the Earth are really the two heavyweights of the solar system. Uranus at 15 times the mass of the Earth and Neptune at 17. So, See, I told you I couldn't remember those numbers. So it's 15 for Uranus and Neptune at 17 times the mass of of the Earth. But notice that these guys are pretty tightly packed compared to these guys are big and pretty fluffy. The gas giants are low density. They're mostly gas. The ice giants, Uranus and Neptune, are more like 1.5, 1.7 grams per cc. They're mostly ices with relatively deep, relatively shallow hydrogen helium atmospheres. To give you, again, a sense of scale, here's Jupiter, which just fills this, this, this picture here. The Earth and the Moon shown to scale, and it turns out one of Jupiter's many moons, Io, one of the Galilean moons, is there, about the size of our Moon as well you can see that there are cyclonic storms on the surface of Jupiter that are the size of the Earth. So these are tremendously interesting worlds, and we'll see them in more detail next week. The dwarf planets were defined by the IAU in 2006. There's a threefold definition for dwarf planets. Number one is they have to orbit around the sun and not be a satellite of any other body, so they can't be like a moon of something. They have to be shaped by gravity. That means that their material forces that hold them together, the gravity forces that hold them together, shape them into spheroids. At least, certainly spherical if they're not rotating, but spheroidal otherwise. So they can't be irregular and lumpy like an old potato. The third principle, and this this turns out in practice, depending upon the material, to mean objects with more than about 800 kilometers in diameter. Now, it depends upon whether we're talking about rock or ice, where that line comes, but in round numbers, the three bona fide dwarf planets are all bigger than 800 kilometers in diameter. Finally, the third, and this is the most controversial of the definitions, is that they are not the dominant object in their orbital neighborhoods. Notice the word not. What we mean by orbital dominance means that their gravity is going to push everything else around within their orbit. Now, the Earth certainly has cleared just about everything out except for some really tiny stuff, and, of course, the moon is captured around the Earth. The Earth dominates the Earth's orbital zone. Jupiter dominates Jupiter's orbital zone. But the the bigger dwarf planets, they turn out to be getting pushed around. In the case of Pluto and Eris, they're primarily getting pushed around by Neptune a bit, and Ceres is actually pushed around a bit by Jupiter. So they're not the dominant thing in their orbital neighborhoods. There are three dwarf planets in the catalog right now. Ceres, which was the first of the asteroids discovered in 1801. Pluto, the first of the trans-Neptunian objects, which was discovered in 1930. And Eris, which was uh, the largest of the trans-Neptunian objects, was discovered just in the year 2005 by a team at Caltech. We'll say more about those later in the class. Here are pictures of the dwarf planets, again, putting them in comparison to the Earth and even the Moon, and you really do see why we call them dwarfs. They really are just really small. Also, their orbits stand out as kind of odd. Pluto's orbit looks more or less normal, except it's tilted 18 degrees out of the plane of the ecliptic. Eris is on a relatively long elliptical orbit. Ceres is more or less circular, but still elliptical. But if I turn this on its side, you now see the degree of tilt of Ceres, Pluto, and the tremendous tilt of the orbit of Eris com- compared to the plane of the ecliptic plane of the solar system. Which is where we saw earlier all the other planets are right down in that plane. So the dwarf planets stand out not only for size, but their orbits are different too. So they really didn't fit in. and that's why we had, to, in many ways why we had to invent a new category for them. And we'll say more about that in about two weeks. The giant moons of the solar system getting down in size. a moon is defined as anything that is a natural satellite orbiting a planet or even a dwarf planet. For example, Pluto has three moons, Eris has at least one moon, Ceres, as far as we know, has no moons. The giant moons are the really big ones. They're the Earth's moon, Jupiter has four giant moons, Io, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto. These are the four Galilean moons of Jupiter. Saturn has one giant moon, Titan, and Neptune has one giant moon, Triton. It's kind of unfortunate, Titan and Triton are a little close in name, so we have to keep them straight here. After you get past this uh, seven giant moons, everything else is a little tiny thing, only a few hundred kilometers across. Some are spherical, some are not. A lot of them are small and rocky. Most of them are very icy moons. They're mostly found out around the Jovians. For example, uh, Saturn currently has uh, 60 moons. Jupiter has 63 moons, most of which are these tiny irregular ice balls. Only Mercury and Venus are the only two major planets that do not have moons. This may have something to do with them being so close to the sun. We really don't have any other explanation for it than that. Again, to put a gallery of these things, just to put them in scale, the moon is not the biggest of the giant moons. The giantest of the giant moons is Ganymede, around Jupiter, at 5,262 kilometers diameter, followed by Titan and Callisto, Io, the moon, Europa, and Triton. So of the seven giant moons, we're really third from the bottom. And these are, these are what they look like. They're interesting worlds on their own. We'll, we'll be visiting these next week, uh, next week or the week after. Week after, next. Moving outwards in the solar system and down a notch a little bit in size are the trans-Neptunian objects. These are a class of very, very icy bodies that are so-called because they orbit beyond the, the orbit of Neptune. Most of these are only, in fact, all of these are mostly found only in the outer solar system. There's a handful that have wandered in dynamically, or they've been scattered in dynamically, but the majority of these are going to be found from 30 astronomical units out into the solar system. Well, we've been able to measure their masses and sizes because they have moons or something. They're low-density objects. They're going to have densities between 1.2 and 2 grams per cc, which is telling us that these are mostly ices, and at the upper end, 2 grams per cc, they're probably ice mantles layered on top of inner rocky cores. So they're differentiated, but now it's the rock sinking below the ice rather than, say, the metals sinking below the silicates, as we see in the terrestrial world. Some examples of these icy trans-Neptunian objects are Pluto and Eris. The two largest of the icy dwarf planets are in this trans-Neptunian zone. There's a whole class of objects that occupies a place called the Kuiper Belt, which lives between roughly 30 and 50 astronomical units. And it actually is relatively tightly bound. It turns out it's bound by orbital resonances with the planet Neptune. So these are objects that are being, having their orbits strongly influenced by the gravitational influence of Neptune. Further out, there are, objects like, there are objects like Charon, which is Pluto's large moon, is also an example of a Kuiper Belt object. It just happens to be orbiting Pluto. And then further out there are some very distant icy bodies that have been discovered in recent years, only because they are on elliptical orbits that bring them relatively close to the sun. Sedna and Kwa are actually two of these things. We're running out of Greek and Latin names for planets, and so we're starting to dip into you'll see Sedna is um Inuit, no, it's not Inuit, it's um Pacific Northwest tribes, a uh, Tlingit, Tlingit tribe, and Kwa is the original peoples of the Los Angeles basin. So we're having to really scrape the mythological barrel here to find names for these objects. Here's some examples of some of these objects. Here's Eris and Pluto, the two largest. Some of these things haven't even been given proper names yet. They still have their astronomical designation, the year in which they were discovered, and then a code number, which I won't go into. Sedna, Orcus, Qua, and Varuna sort of round these out. But notice they're not all round. 2003 EL61 is shaped like a tumbling football, and it has two moons to boot. So there's some really some crazy stuff out there. The Kuiper belt's fairly tightly constrained between the one-to-one and two-to-one resonance with Neptune, so between 30 and 50 astronomical units out. And it's largely, it's a fairly fat belt, and it contains a lot of objects on mostly elliptical orbits, Pluto and Eris being the largest of these. Here's a map, just as of the other day, of all the known Kuiper belt objects. Here's the orbit of Neptune, and then, of course, Uranus, Saturn and Jupiter. Here, you can see some of the stuff around Jupiter, but the red spots are where we see most of the objects. This gap here looks like, wow, hey, there's a gap in the uh, Kuiper Belt. No, that's because that's the direction of the galactic plane, and there's so many stars in that direction, we can't see the faint Kuiper Belt objects because they're confused with stars. But we're starting to fill in the bands of the Kuiper Belt, slowly but surely, over the last 10 years or so. The first Kuiper Belt object was discovered only in 1992. After that, you get into the leftovers, all the leftover junk and bits of stuff that were left over in the solar system. There's sort of two basic groups of these. The asteroids are rock, where we've been able to measure their masses and sizes. They have densities between two and three grams per cc. So they're rock and metal. Some of them actually are rock, metal, and some ice mixes actually in some of the stuff we're learning recently. They range in size from a few hundred kilometers down to the size of a big boulder, are the smallest of these objects we can trace. And most of them are found in a place called the main belt, between 2.1 and 3.2 astronomical units. Those boundaries are set, interestingly enough, by orbital resonances with Jupiter. So once again, resonances raise their head. The meteoroids are smaller bits of rock, they range from rocks down to grains of sand, and they occasionally hit the Earth's atmosphere and burn up, and occasionally one's big enough to make a rock, make a dent in the ground or dent in a car or something. And finally we have the comets. These are composite rock and ice dirty snowballs that as they get close to the Sun they begin to sublime off gases and you get spectacular tails like the material we're seeing puffed off comet Holmes these days. So just some pictures. This is the asteroid main belt between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. We've already seen this picture but now all the white dots form the so-called main belt of asteroids. There are 100,000 odd asteroids currently known. Here's some pictures of some of these asteroids. They're irregular, dirty, rocky objects. They kind of look like spoiled old potatoes. Meteors tend to be rocky objects that burn up in our atmosphere. They can either be stony or made of nearly pure iron. We'll learn about those in a couple weeks. Actually, we'll show you a couple examples of meteors we have in our collection. And comets, of course, are little ice balls that occasionally come close enough to the sun to blow off immense tails hundreds of millions of kilometers long, making spectacular light shows. But deep inside is a dark, cratered, irregular, dirty snowball of mostly ices, rock, and other nasty bits. In the last week of class, we'll actually make a comet nucleus in class and see how they're composed. Well, this is the basic outline of where we're going to go. We're going to start with the origins of the solar system, and then we're going to begin with the terrestrial planets and move our way outwards. And all the way along, we're going to be looking for a number of things. Traces of the origins of the solar system the role of gravitational resonances and orbital resonances in shaping the orbits of objects, the role of impacts in shaping the surfaces of objects, and how all of those work together to give us the dynamical history of the solar system that in the last few years we're just starting to learn how to read. And we'll pick it up tomorrow with the question of origins.